Yo, this is the Live from the Kitchen podcast with your host, Virgil, from Infrastructure of a Man. And today's title of our podcast is Righteousness Doesn't Equal Weakness, Rights and Responsibilities of Being God's Chosen Seed. Now, due to the current events with Kanye West and Kyrie Irving, Kanye West, the words um, that he was saying and some of the statements he made, as well as Kyrie Irving and him linking on his Twitter account, to the documentary Hebrews the Negroes, many blacks are being exposed to the knowledge that they are the original Israelites or Jews. But what does that mean? What does it mean to be Israel? What does that title come with? And what are your responsibilities that come with the right to carry that title? Now, many of you who've been listening to my podcast knows that I am in the Hebraic, the Hebrew Israelite walk, the faith. And I've been in my walk since 2016, Uh, about April or June, I came into the walk. Now me coming into the walk was totally about happenstance, at least in my eyes. What happened was one day I was going to post a Bible verse. Actually, I was going to make a post on Facebook and the post I wanted it to say, The reason why sin is so alluring and the reason why sin is so beautiful is because the devil is beautiful and alluring. But me being a person who naturally loves to research and teach, I make sure that I back up what I'm saying with substantial evidence, with concrete evidence. So I don't want to just post on my Facebook, the devil is the reason why sin is so, or sin is so beautiful because the devil is so beautiful. I wanted to go and get the Bible verse. So I went to where they had told us the description of the devil was at. I went to Ezekiel 28. When I went to Ezekiel 28 and started reading, something right before I went to go post it, something told me, go and read the entire verse or the entire chapter. So when I went and read the entire chapter, I was like, whoa, hold on. This isn't talking about the devil. This isn't even talking about a spiritual or non-human entity. This is talking about the king of Tyrus. This was a proverb given to the king of Tyrus from the Most High through the prophet Ezekiel. So then the first question that popped into my head, this this wasn't even a conscious question. This was a subconscious question. The first question that popped into my head was, well, if they've been lying to, if they lied to us about this, what else in the Bible have they lied to us about? Then I went to Isaiah 14. Eventually I came to Isaiah 14 where it actually has the word Lucifer listed in the English version. And then I read the entire verse or the entire chapter. And when I read the entire chapter, I realized this isn't talking about Lucifer, how we've been told, but this was a lamentation given to the king of Babylon, who was a man, a normal, regular man, even with the description of how he tried to set his throne above the most high. Even in the verse in Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 28, where it talks about him being a cherubim and and having all of these adornment of jewels and even being in the Garden of Eden. There was never talking about some fallen angel or some spirit. It was talking about mortal men. So then I went and started doing my research. And I started coming across information from people who, you know, actually follow the Bible or, you know, Messianic Jews or whatnot. Now, here's the ironic thing. 
in my research, I never came across any Israelite teachings. I never came across any Israelite pages or videos or websites. These are all normal, regular people who were saying this is how we're supposed to be keeping the Bible. Now, the coincidental thing about that is, as I started reading and listening to what they said, I noticed that it started to line up with the teachings that my father was saying and the things I would see him post on Facebook. Here's the thing. Me and my father, for a very long time, didn't have a really close relationship. He was there in my life when I was a kid, but he wasn't always there. Um, he wasn't as present as he could have been. So we didn't have that strong of a bond. We didn't have that strong of a relationship. So when he would come and tell me things, I I wouldn't necessarily listen to it. I would shut things down. So he was talking to me up, trying to talk to me about some of these things. I was in a Christian church and I was in a Christian walk. And my whole thing was love God, love everybody else as if you love yourself. That's it. That's all we're supposed to be doing. But as I started researching on my own and finding these things, and then they started lining up with the things that I would remember him saying or the things I would see him post online, it started to make sense. So then I started doing some research into the Hebraic walk and in the Hebraic faith. And when me when I started doing that, that research, then it all started to make sense to me. This wasn't something someone told me. This is something that I went and researched on my own and came to my own conclusion on. I said, out of anything, this makes the most sense to me. And I went, had, you know, some more conversations with my father about some of the things that I wanted to learn and some of the things that I quite, didn't quite understand and the things that he would tell me. I would go back and research on my own and come to conclusions. And that's how that went. And eventually one night. I ended up having a dream the most powerful dream I've ever had in my life. I had a dream that I was I was standing like at the bottom of a mountain. It was clouds, it was thunder, it was all of this just chaos and chaoticness, not necessarily chaos and chaoticness, but power. There was a ton of power and a hand came out of the cloud and grabbed me by my face and dipped me under some water and picked me back up and dip me back under some water again and pick me back up and dip me underwater again. And then when it, when I came up again, a voice said, you have been forgiven and cleansed. Now go out and do my work. So when I went out and when I woke up from that dream, all of a sudden I was drenched in sweat. I was drenched just like I had been dumped in the water. Never had a dream that powerful before. So then as I went in, started going underneath my father, started going to different, meeting different Israelite brothers, I went out and I started, you know, doing, at first I didn't. At first I was like, oh, we're supposed to stay in the house on Sabbaths, not go anywhere, not leave our fence posts. Make sure I studied Torah. Because one of the things that I realized is, okay, we have to keep the commandments. So I started studying Torah. And in my studying of Torah, that's what I came across. So at first when my dad would invite me out to go do street preaching and whatnot, I wouldn't go. But then I realized, you know, hey, I'm doing I'm doing good works. I'm, I'm, you know, helping the community out, helping wake people up, all this and that. So then I started going out. And what I realized in me going out is. And also me starting to watch videos, seeing other Israelites go out. And what I noticed is they all had the same type of teaching. So in this teaching that they all had. They all would just talk about who we are, 
how we're chosen, the curses, how we fall, fell underneath these curses, how did we get to where we were at, all of these things. With me going out doing my street teachings with my father and other brothers as well, and me noticing that they taught without necessarily teaching. They, they were teaching how we got there, but not how to get out. So they would say, or they would teach, we need to get back to the law, statutes, and commandments. But I never heard anyone saying what the law, statutes, and commandments were. So that's when I found what my position and my gap was. So when I went out in the street preached or went out and did my street teachings, I never did any bashing. I never did any tearing down of other groups. I never did any demonizing of anyone else because I've always been under the notion, especially once I learned this identity, I've always been under the notion, wait, hold on. The most I said, because of your actions, this is why you're in this position. So that means it's only going to take my actions to get out. It's no one else's problem, fault, or responsibility. It's ours. So let me go in and teach what it takes to get out. So I started teaching the commandments. And most people think, okay, there are only 10 commandments, not realizing there are a whole host of other commandments. Most people think it's difficult to keep the commandments, not realizing that it's not. When I first heard I had to keep the commandments, what I actually did was I went and I read through Torah. And what I realized by reading through Torah is if you're a decent human being and you're just you're just a normal, decent human being, you're going to cover most of these things anyway. So you have to be a pretty crappy human being to be doing some of the things that you're not supposed to be doing. Now you have the upper echelon of commandments that we had to keep, and you have to have a higher level of discipline and a higher level of commitment to, to keep those. But the basics, you just have to be a basic good human being to keep those. It wasn't that difficult took a lot of weight off my shoulders. But then what I ended up doing to make sure that I really knew it, I started, as I started studying, like I told you, I'm all about research. I'm all about concrete facts. So as I started researching and realizing, wait, hold on, the King James has a lot of mistranslations. So I went back and I read Torah five separate times. I read Torah in the King James Bible. I read Torah in the OJB, which is the Orthodox Jewish Bible. I read Torah in the ESV or the English Standard Bible. I downloaded the Safari app and I read the King James Bible from there where it had it translated exactly from Hebrew over to English. And then I went back and read it again in the King James just to see what my new thought process was after reading it in all of these different versions. And there are some things that are there that are not supposed to be there. There are some things that have been improperly translated, all of that. But the gist and the basis of what you're supposed to be are there. So I got a deeper understanding. I started studying Hebrew. I started studying the letters, the sounds, the meanings of each letters. Because at one point in time before we got the block Hebrew, we had paleo script Hebrew, which the, each picture had its own meaning. So I started studying the meaning of the pictures or of the letters because when you take the letters and you put them together to make a word in the English, we just know, let's just say the word dog. D-O-G is dog. We don't really know how those letters come together to mean dog. We just know D-O-G means dog. But in the Hebrew language, 
and there was a point in time when you put the words, when you put the letters together to form words, you can get the definition of the word by knowing what each individual letter meant. So for instance, the word and the word father in Hebrew is Ab. Aleph Bet. Aleph means strong leader. Bet means house. So when you put it together and you look at the picture, the 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 pictograph, it means the leader of the strong leader of the house or the head of the house. So I know what father means based off of the letters of the word. So I was able to go in and study Hebrew and break the language down in that manner so that I could get a better understanding of what it was that I was doing. I then started going in on a deeper level and seeing not just what I'm supposed to be doing, but why. The creator wouldn't just give us these things to do if he didn't have a purpose for us doing them. He's not just going to say do this just to do them. So I started studying the science, the science behind all of the commandments. So for instance, one of the commandments is you're not supposed to eat the fat of red meat. And it's like, okay, well, why are we not supposed to eat the fat of red meat? Because, and once you get down to the scientific um, underlines of it, in nature, the only place in nature where trans fats are found, are in the fats of red meat. Trans fats are, are contributors to high blood pressure, to loss of, of, of memory, um, to aggression. All of these things are what trans fats carry in them. That's why you weren't supposed to eat the, the, the fats of red meat. So a lot of, so I started going back and studying what did all of these things mean? Because some people just do things without knowing why they do them. And then when, when the rubber meets the road on someone challenging you on if you're doing them, then you fall off because it never made sense to you. Never made it make sense. Even keeping the Sabbath, the body works on a, on a cycle, on a circadian cycle where you need a, a rest. Your body naturally needs a rest every seven days. Now we can argue what the seventh day is, but what we cannot argue is the cycle in which our body runs on. So that's why it, it made sense to me to keep these commandments because what I realized is that us keeping the commandments isn't for the most high. The most high is the creator of all things. The commandments aren't for him. He gave us these commandments for us to be the best versions of ourselves. So the Sabbath, I'm resting. I can't be the best version of myself and work diligently if I'm just consistently working and working and working and working and working and tearing my body down, eventually my body's going to give out. So how you combat that is you rest. And so if, if I can, if the creator tell, if the creator has come up with this instruction to help you continuously be successful, why not follow it? So that was the understanding that I came to with my deeper understanding, with me learning Hebrew and a lot of other other connections that I ended up making. Another connection that I ended up making was um, I realized, you know, is 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 not really important. I won't say it's not important. It's important, but it's less important what you call yourself and more important what you do. At this point in time, I was, you know, doing a lot of debating, a lot of. How can I say it? Being being very contentious and things like that. And so one day when I was at work, I used to be a high school teacher. 
one of the individuals that was working in the office, me and her were sitting out having a talk because she was a very religious person. And so I was just, you know, talking to her about some things. She's like, oh, yeah, you know, I keep saying. At first I started because I heard her saying she doesn't do Christmas. And I was like, oh, wow, because you don't really hear too many people. At that time, I didn't really hear too many people say they don't celebrate Christmas. And I asked her, hey, why you don't you love because we're not supposed to? And she started going into the Bible and stuff. And then she started talking about feast days and she started talking about Sabbath and all of these things. So now I'm getting excited. She's like, oh, you're an Israelite. And she said, what? What's that? And I said, you don't know the Israelite issue? Like, no, I've never heard of that. I said, so you keep all the commandments? She's like, yeah, because that's what my church does. I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. And we keep the commandments like we're supposed to because that's what we're supposed to be doing as followers of Christ. And when she told me that, it totally changed my perspective on so many things. And I realized it's, not, it's less important what you call yourself and more important on what you do. So then I stopped judging people off of titles. I started looking at people's actions. And as I continue to grow and move and maneuver in what it is that I'm doing, my perspective started to change. As I started having more interactions with individuals in the world, my perspective started to change. So one day, my, my full perspective changed. I used to work for a nonprofit and I was doing some work and I was running a basketball camp. And ironically, I was running a basketball camp at a Jewish facility. We had a Jewish facility back home in Tampa. And so as I'm, some days I would catch the bus because sometimes I just like catching the bus, like walking. I didn't always like to drive everywhere. Sometimes I would leave my car at the house and I would catch the bus somewhere and get on the bus. And so I got on the bus and as I'm walking, I see a sign and a part of it. So where this Jewish community was at was in West Tampa. And those of you all who know West Tampa, West Tampa at one point in time was a very underdeveloped, um, um, lacking resources area. So I saw a sign with the Jewish community advertising or not necessarily advertising, but they're talking about rebuilding homes and all of this and that in the area. And, and it kind of upset me because I'm like, how dare they come into our neighborhoods trying to do, you know, trying to, you know, rebuild homes and all this and that. And then I kept reading down on the sign and it was talking about, you know, how they're feeding people and doing all these things. And then it hit me. Whoa, why am I mad? What am I mad about? These people are doing what it is that we should be doing. We call ourselves the chosen children of the most high. We say that we have a responsibility and this is our title. But at that time, I did not see anyone practicing what it was to be being an Israelite or a Jew, whichever name or title you want to call yourself. And I said, these people are doing what we're supposed to be doing, but we're mad at them. They're reaping benefits that we claim are supposed to be ours, but they're doing the work for the benefits. At that time, all I knew was Israelites who stood on the corner and preached at other people. And, and con some people condemned, some people name called, different things. People did different things. Some people didn't do all of that. But at that time, all I knew of, of the Israelite walk was that. And I said, here we are standing on the corner yelling at people, but they're rebuilding communities and feeding people. I will never open my mouth up to anyone else again. I will never open my mouth up to talk about anyone else and who they are when, when I'm not doing what they're doing. 
So then that's where my mindset changed. And that's when my mission in my walk changed. That's when I said, I'm going to start doing what it is that I'm supposed to be doing. If I call myself a chosen seed of the most high, well, I have to start acting like it. And so that's when I started doing what the most started putting myself in position to do what the most I called us to do. I realized what we are actually called to do, we were not fulfilling it. Then I ended up having a conversation with my good friend, Steve. And in my conversation, it, it led me to start up my own mini ministry. What This isn't something I was trying to pull people into. This isn't something that I was trying to push on other people um, or convert or proselyte, none of those things. This ministry I created for myself and it was to hold myself to a higher standard. And I called it the Living Word Initiative. And I called myself the Living Word. I said, I am the Living Word. Because it wasn't that I was trying to make myself holier than anyone else. It was I wanted to hold myself to a standard because I was and I have the, the thought process and the belief that when the most I spoke, he spoke and he created everything around us. And of course, he created us as well. And in him speaking and creating me, he created me in his word and in his speech to do great things. So if I am his living word, if I am the thing he created, I have to carry myself such as. So that's when I started going under the I am the living word. Wasn't to be boastful, wasn't to prop myself up or anything like that. It was to hold myself to a higher standard so that way I can be what I was called to be. And then what I also realized was that the Israelite teachings that we had got, they may have been tampered with. One of the things that I learned was that the CIA had infiltrated the Israelite movement back in like the 70s. And some of the doctrine that we had carried from there was some of the influences that they have they may have given us. So I said, you know what? I'm going to start. I'm going to I'm going to be the living word. Also, what I uh, another thing that I realized was that in scripture, we have this wonderful thing. We have this Bible. But all of the patriarchs, none of them had a Bible. They didn't have a Bible, even in the New Testament. Yahushua didn't have a Bible. The apostles didn't have a Bible. They had scrolls. They had Torah. They had, they had prophets, scrolls. They had those things in the New Testament. But like Abraham, he didn't have a Bible. He didn't have a book. And I realized it's not just about keeping the commandments in the book. It's about that as well, but it's also about being obedient to the, to the assignment that the most High has given you at the moment. So I realized something was off about this walk because we were so focused in on the book. And then we weren't like doing works. We were waking up people. We were, we were telling them who they are. We were telling them what they, you know, in a roundabout what we're supposed to be doing, but we weren't, actually feeding people we weren't housing people we weren't showing people how to improve you know their finances we weren't showing people how to conflict how to solve problems and conflict resolution like those are all things that are just as important because without those things nothing else matters anyway if you go up to somebody and they're starving you're telling hey you're the chosen child be honest with you that's not going to mean much to them and i know this for a fact because we were going to talk to a lot of people I know this for a fact. 
You have to you have to show them how your life improves your situation, how your life and how what you're doing can improve them. But you can only do that by showing, not by telling. So I always wanted to be the person that showed what it was to be a chosen child of the most high, not someone who just talked about being a chosen child of the most high. I wanted my my actions, my spirit to bear witness for me more than my words did. So that's what I started living under. That is the moniker that I lived under. This isn't something that, you know, Israelites teach. This is my own revelation that I got from my prayer and meditation and fasting and talking to the Most High. So eventually I ended up moving to Atlanta. I found a spiritual home in HCA, Hebrew Congregation of Atlanta. And this spiritual home was great because unlike any other Israelite home that I had been to before, any other teaching that I've been to before, no offense against anyone else, but this was the first place where it wasn't dogmatic doctrine being taught. Like this was the first place where, no, we are going to do scholarly research. We're going to present information academically. We're not going, we're not going to do circular reasoning with the Bible. We're going to go outside of the Bible to prove what's in the Bible. We're going to go outside of the Bible to prove ourselves. We're going to go outside of the Bible to prove everything. We're going to use the Bible but we also going to have supporting evidence of these things as well. So that's why I enjoyed HCA. And eventually I also became a teacher at HCA, started doing lessons at HCA, all of these different things. So I was able to find a community. Eventually I came across an awesome moray. Now this, we were actually, with HCA, we was actually out feeding the homeless. And I met a guy who was also out feeding the homeless. Ironically, this individual was a Muslim. And his name was, um, his name is Sarum. Sarum was a great moray. He ended up becoming a great moray, is a great moray. And I started learning underneath him, learning from him, learning a lot of things about just the spiritual aspect. Because though he was at that time a practicing Muslim, he had been in the Hebraic walk as well. He had been in other walks, so he was well-rounded. So me and him shared that same spirit. Whereas like, I want to get down to the truth. I don't, I don't care about, you know, I don't care about dogmatic stuff. I don't care about doctrine. I want to get down to what is the truth. So we eventually got to that. And it was me meeting him where I learned the, the, the definition of Israel that really resonated with me. So one day we were talking and, you know, we were just doing the talking and doing some studying and whatnot. And he was going over, you know, breaking down the word Israel. And so most times we're taught that Israel, the word Israel means either one who champions with God, one who fights with God, one who strives with God, one who strives with God and man and overcomes. Those are a lot of the many definitions, but he put it in a way that has resonated with me to this day. And this is what I use for my walk. When you go back to the story of Jacob, when he got his name Israel, he was striving with an Elohim. Some people say it was God. Some people say it was an angel. In Hebrew, it says Elohim. So that can be any that can be any spiritual power. So he was fighting with that individual, and then eventually he ended up winning. But if you look at the story and you take the story out of it, out of the context that it's in its, if you if you don't look at it in a way it's just told the story, but you look at it from a different perspective, 
really he was having a, an internal battle with himself. If you look at the totality of the story, he was having an internal battle with himself. He was it was the old him battling the new him, and he was trying to move forward to become a new person because before then he had been a swindler, he had been a trickster, he had been a thief, he had done all of these different things. But now when it when he thought he was about to lose his life, he knew he had to change and do something different. The old him was trying to trying to fight even when you read the story if you see the story when he thought his brother was coming to kill him what did he do he sent his family up ahead first and when he sent his family up ahead first he sent his family up ahead as offerings or as tributes and maybe he'll he'll kill them or take them hostage and leave me be people don't catch that part of the story but then once he realized okay i have to do something different he stopped fighting and he and his new self overcame it and and beat his and beat his old self so that's why it says his name changed to israel and then the the story of you know he's touching the hollow of his hip all of a sudden he had to walk with a limp aka his walk changed when people say your walk changes that means you change the way you do things in life these are all metaphorical meanings of different things when you take them out of out of their if you take them out of their literal context and you put them in and what it means in the full totality of the story. So his walk changed, AKA how he lived his life changed. But he said, if you really think about it, it was the lower version of himself. This is what Moray Sorum said. The lower version of himself was battling with the higher version of himself. So when it's Israel, it's, it literally means one who fights with himself. AKA, I'm sorry, one who battles with himself and wins. AKA, self mastery. One who masters himself. One who battles with himself and wins. One who masters himself. AKA, self mastery. To be Israel, to call yourself Israel, is to call yourself someone who masters himself. Someone who's practicing self mastery. That has been my adoption of Israel ever since then. Ever since that conversation, I said, whether I'm blood Israel or not blood Israel, I will always call myself Israel because I'm always someone who's striving for self-mastery. So that's why I got to that point. So to be Israel is to be someone who is striving for self-mastery. So that's what it means to be Israel, striving for self-mastery. Are you working to master the parts of yourself that don't serve you, the parts of yourself that stop you from being that being that the most I created you to be? That's what Israel is. So now I want to transition into the rights and the responsibilities of being God's chosen seed. So I went on the etymology online dictionary. And I looked up the word Jew. Now, many people know the word Jew is short for, you know, like it's supposed to be like uh, uh, for Yehuda, because it's supposed to be for the tribe of Judah. So Jew, Judah, Jew, but it's really from Yehuda because there's no J in Hebrew. So you got Yehuda because the Jews was the, the tribe of Judah or Yehuda in Hebrew. So I got the English definition, but this is this is why you have to make sure you're paying attention to words because words have different contexts and meanings. And we're going to that at another time. But the term Jew from etymology online from the late 12th century 
Jew, Jew, a Jew, ancient or modern, one of the Jewish race or religion from Anglo-French, Ayu, Old French, you, modern French, Juf, from Latin, Aduium, nominative, Aduius, from Greek, Iotus, from Aramaic, Semitic, Jehudai, Yahudi, Jahudi, Hebrew, Yahudi, a Jew from Yehuda, Judah literally celebrated. So the name, so the word Jew, the name Jew, when you get down to his definition that I got from the etymology online dictionary. So this is the origin of the word Jew. It means celebrated, to be celebrated. So that's what that means. So now we want to get to what are the rights and responsibilities of being the chosen seed? Because if you want to call yourself a Jew, that means you want to call yourself someone who's celebrated. But in order to be celebrated, that's something that you have to earn. So what are your rights and responsibilities as being a Jew? So some of the rights that you get by being a Jew, Israelite, whatever title you want to use. Here are some of the rights that you get. You get abundance and increase in your work. You get abundance and increase in the work that your hands put forth and that your mind puts forth and everything that your hand and mind goes to do, you get an increase of that. That's one of the rights of being a Jew. You get a peace of mind. You get a lack of fear. You get protection from those that want to cause you harm. You get a backlog of resources. And you get to walk with Yah, God, by your side. So these are some, not all, but these are some, and, and um, I would venture to say the most important rights that you get for being a Jew. But now when, when it comes to rights, you also have to discuss responsibilities. And these are the responsibilities that you get for being a Jew. Now, I need you all to understand the importance. As blacks, we want to call ourselves Jews and we want to focus on the rights that we get for being a Jew. But with any right comes a responsibility. What did it, what did, what did Peter Parker's uncle say in Spider-Man? With great power comes great responsibility. With great rights comes great responsibility. So you have to understand that you don't get to just bask in the benefits and don't get to put forth the work of the responsibilities. So here are the responsibilities, some of the responsibilities of being called a Jew. Having a higher standard for oneself as well as for those around you. I want to read a scripture really quick. It's from the book of Haggai chapter two. Um, and I, I want to read this because I want to make an emphasis to, to let people know that good doesn't make evil good. And I want to and I want to read this because this is important to understanding the responsibility of being called a Jew or Israelite. So I'm going to read from the ESV. So I'm not, I'm not going to replace Lord or God with y'all, my Hebrew brother. And, you know, you just just read through it because I have many people on that's listening to this podcast and I don't want to confuse them. Thus said the Lord of hosts, ask the priest about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment 
and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or any of the kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with the dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so it is with this people and with the nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands and, and whatever they offer is unclean. What the most I was saying here is something clean does not make something unclean clean. And something that is unclean cannot be made clean by something that is clean. Let's go back. Let's think to a more modern analogy. The analogy of a rotten fruit spoils the whole bunch, or the analogy of if you have a hamper of clothes, a hamper of clean clothes, and you throw dirty clothes in there, that those dirty clothes are going to dirty up. I'm sorry. Those clothes are going to be dirtied up. The clean clothes are going to be dirtied by the dirty clothes. If you have a basket full of dirty clothes and you throw one piece of clean cloth in there, that clean cloth doesn't make the whole basket clean. Those dirty clothes now make the clean clothes dirty. If you have a, a hamper of clean clothes and you throw a muddy shoe in there or a muddy t-shirt, those clean clothes didn't make that muddy article all of a sudden clean. No, that dirty article made those clean articles dirty. So the reason why I gave this analogy is that one of our responsibilities is to hold ourselves to a higher standard as well as those around us. And when it comes to what we want in our communities, I'm sorry, what we want calling ourselves Jews, we have not reached that pinnacle yet as a whole. We allow things to slide in our community that other communities do not. We want the luxuries that other communities have, but don't want to keep the same standards. Look at some of our neighborhoods versus the neighborhoods of other communities. Now, yes, in other races and other communities, they have poverty. And in other races and other communities, they have crime and they deal with a lot of other issues. But there are certain things in other communities that they do not let slide, that we let slide. We hide criminals in crime. Do you think this happens in other communities? As a matter of fact, we don't even want to compare ourselves to other communities. We want to we want to compare ourselves to where it is that we are, that we strive to be or who we say we are. So we say we're Jews and we talk about what it means to be a Jew. Do you think in the Jewish community, do you think they're hiding theft? Do you think they have a no snitching policy. Now, yes, they do police their own communities. And yes, they have their own community, so they live by a different code and standard. But in that code and standard, when it comes to crime, violent crime especially, do you think they're hiding those types of criminals? Of course, we have to ask ourselves. And even if they are, because our goal isn't to be equal. If we say we're the chosen seed, that means we have a standard set above all else. So that means that if we want to be who we say we are, 
we have to have ourselves, we have to hold ourselves to a higher standard. So irregardless of what someone else is doing. Do y'all think that this is behavior of a chosen generation or a chosen seed? How can you want the rights to be the top of the world with gutter behavior? The music that we produce, and I know a lot of people say, well, the music is a reflection of the community. There was a point in time when the communities were worse than they are now, and I don't remember that music being out. Maybe I'm wrong. Y'all let me know. But I don't remember us even producing that type of music. And the communities were worse. Crime was worse. Murder rates were higher. Theft was higher. Drug use was higher. And we did not put out this type of music. Now, a lot of people like, so the music is, like I said, is just reporting it. But what we have to realize is that same music and that same avenue has been used as a weapon against us. Because this is what gets highlighted in our community. So how can we grow as a community if what's negative is being highlighted in our community? But we want to be the chosen seed. We say we're the chosen seed. There's a, there's a standard we have to hold ourselves to. In life, you don't get what you want. You get who you are. And if there's no enemy within, then the enemy outside can do you no harm. See, the, see we have, we, we, we're consistently fighting enemies outside, and that's because we're also fighting the enemy within ourselves, our collective. We're fighting amongst ourselves. We have to get ourselves together and absolutely know it's not going to be picture perfect. I'm not saying we have to live in this perfect utopia as black folks who have no problems and no issues and we're all kumbaya whole hands. That has never happened in the history of earth. I don't expect it to happen now. But what I do expect or what I do feel that we can do is hold ourselves to a higher standard where we can have disagreements and it doesn't lead to unnecessary bloodshed. One of our biggest issues in our community isn't poverty. One of our biggest issues in our community is lack of conflict resolution skills. You don't have to have money to be able to problem solve, to be able to critically think through your actions. You don't need money for that. What you need is a set of skills. And that's not even a skill that you need money to teach. We've forgotten how to properly resolve conflict. That's our biggest issue. We learn how to resolve conflict. We stop unnecessarily killing each other. We stop unnecessarily becoming one's enemy, fighting amongst one another, bickering, men against women, women against men, younger folks versus older folks. Like we stop all of that. We, we work on commonalities. We work to be understanding. We work for win-win scenarios and win-win outcomes. 
We have this win-lose, lose-win mindset, and it doesn't have to be like that. It can be win-win. Absolutely, one of the things in our community that we want to do is keep our families together. But in, but, but in reality, that's not, that's not going to happen. But just because families break up doesn't mean that you have to all then go to war. If you are two individuals and you've had children or a child together, that doesn't mean if you all split up, you all have to go to war. You're not enemies. You should have the, 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 the common interest of making sure that your child is still raised whole. It's okay. Life happens. But to then try and destroy everybody in, the, in that family ecosystem because of pride and ego, that doesn't help us. But that's coming from a lack of, con of, of conflict resolution skills and a lack of critical thinking not thinking in the future. That's what that is. Fathers, if you leave and you aren't there for your children, we're not talking about monetary, we talk about period, you're not there for your children. That's going to be more damaging to them than almost anything else that can happen to them. Mothers, if you, out of spite, go and put a man on child support and that sucks up the wealth out of his home and you're not at least going to do something positive with the wealth. Who does that help? How does that help your child? Fathers, you walking out not helping at all. How does that help your child? The goal is to find a win-win solution for both of you all, especially in that we're in 2022. Life is difficult and many of us have not been given the proper tools. So you have to figure it out. That way it's beneficial for everyone. Mothers, if if the if the uh, if your if your baby daddy, if you're taking his money, he can't get his life together, what image does that send to your child? What do you think? What what do you think? What do you think your child's going to think his ceiling is or her ceiling is? Where their father got to. But if you're financially hindering that that father. What you're doing is hindering your child as well. Because the majority of you are not doing anything with the wealth anyways. Fathers, if you just walk out of your child's life and you don't contribute anything at all, what do you think that does for your child? What ceiling do you think they see? On top of spiritually, children have a connection to the father. Spiritually, the father provides stability, a backbone, confidence. Discipline. So when you remove your presence out of that child's life, no one can replace that. Even if they, even if they get stepdad of the year, there's still going to always be something they're lacking. They're still going to have that lack of confidence because their father wasn't there. That's what you strip from your child is, is greater than money. Women, I need you all to understand that as well about trying to keep your trying to keep the father out of your child's life. You're stripping confidence out of your child's life, and you can prop your child up all you want to. But there is a spiritual component that the father has that is the confidence that the child is supposed to is supposed to get from them. And you can't replace that. No matter how hard you try, no matter how tough you try to be. So as great as your child may become, there's always there's always a level they won't reach because their father was absent if you keep their father out their life. So we have to get this together in our community. There was a point in time before the welfare system kicked in where 
there was, I want to say it was a less than a 10% birth rate of children out of wedlock or out of two parent homes. Now I believe the number's up to 70 for us. The greatest, the greatest part of wealth building and nation building is family. Family, community. Can't have a community if you don't have families. Can't have a community if you have families warring with each other and, and at odds against one another. If I can't trust you, how can I be an ally to you? If you can't trust me, how can you be an ally for me? So we have to get out of that. But that is something that we have to get past, that enemy within. That's how you exemplify being a chosen seed of the Most High. Some of your other responsibilities. Having not adopted idols. Now, most people are going to take this and run with, you know, the literal meaning idols of gods. But idols as in anything that, that, that directs you to do something different than the Most High told you to do. That's an idol. Any other power that's greater than the Most High, that's an idol. Your other responsibilities as men, not to be involved with other men's women. How can we? How can? How can you have? How can you fight with a man? Fight when I say with fight in unison with a man, if you're afraid he's gonna go and sleep with your wife behind your back. Now, we say we got all these enemies out here and everybody's our enemy. Well, I also can't have the enemy within because you're sleeping with my wife. Leave other men's wives alone. Having not oppressed anyone. Help free those that are oppressed. These are responsibilities that comes with those rights that we talked about earlier. Have not robbed anyone. Have not helped though. Have not, I'm sorry, have helped those that are in hunger. These are these are some of the these are some of the responsibilities. Being a father to the fatherless and defender of righteousness. See, that goes back earlier to having a higher standard. When you see something wrong, saying something. Now we've been brainwashed with this him without saying cast the first stone. This is why it's important to know Torah. Because if you know Torah, you'll know that we've been using that that verse out of context for hundreds of years. And it's time we stop because using that has done, has done more harm to our community than good. Telling people not to judge one another. First off, we're not judging because we haven't sentenced anyone. That's what, that's what judgment is. No one's sentencing anyone to anything. But if I see you doing something that's, that's detrimental to you, I should be allowed to speak out on it. At one point in time in our community, we were able to. And then we got to a point where we stopped accepting criticism. I don't know when that happened. I would have to go back and research that. But we got to a point where we stopped accepting criticism from one another and the destruction of our community and the breakup of our community happened. But as a defender of righteousness, when something is wrong, you have to see it. Now, here's the thing really quick. I just want to touch on this. I don't want to go into the details of it. I might do that on a, on another lesson. But a lot of people like to say, well, you sinning. How can you say that I'm sinning? Here's the thing. If I see you doing something that I myself am doing, absolutely, it makes me a hypocrite to tell you not to do that. 
that does make me a hypocrite. But if I'm over here doing something else and I see you doing something different, that doesn't make me a hypocrite to tell you not to do that. Now, absolutely, I should be taking care of my own home. But at the same time, we're supposed to be one another's keeper. We're supposed to be helping one another. I don't. Here's the thing. Look at how the human the human faces is constructed. Our eyes are created to look forward. We see a little bit in our peripheral, but we see everything forward. We can't see behind us. So sometimes we can't see the full spectrum. So it takes another set of eyes to help us. You will be foolish to stop someone else's eyes from helping you see what you can't see. As, as long as you understand that it's coming from a good place, secondary to your feelings. And then most importantly, the most important, the most two most important responsibilities that we have that we have to keep in order to get the get the respect and to get the rights. We have to keep Torah. And more importantly, when the Mosai tells us to act on something, we have to do that. We all have a mission. We all have an assignment. Just like even this podcast, me doing this. If you all knew what I had to go through in order to get this up. You will be amazed. And most people might chalk it up and be like, oh, the devil. No, ain't no devil. There's no enemy. Nope. It's the most high. I gave you an assignment. How bad do you want to do the assignment? Are you really dedicated to what I tell you to do in the here and now? Not just in the book, but in the here and now. Are you as dedicated to do in the here and now what I want you to do as you are anything else? So I kept pushing forward, pushing through. But keeping Torah and also keeping keeping the living commandments of the Most High, a.k.a. what he tells you to do at that moment. So now I want to go back real quick. Conversation I was having with Moray Sarum. And this goes with the responsibilities because you have to know, you know, greatness. And we were talking and we were sitting around, a group of us to sit around talking about crystals and you know all of those crystals metaphysical world all this and that and he said something very astounding he said yeah those things are cool and everything those things are great but wait until you find out or wait until they find out that they are the crystal wait until you find out that you are the crystal and when he said that it was like yo hold on we take pride in in taking our power and putting it outside and giving and giving our power away to outside sources and outside forces when the power is within us we like literally we are the crystal now yes this i i am a, a huge proponent on the most i put us here on this planet and everything on this planet is to be used as a tool for us to succeed humans have come in and have chosen what to demonize and not to demonize and all of these different things, and a lot of the things that we have demonized, the Most High did not demonize. But if you use it for good, and you use it in the name and in the power of the Most High, and a lot of people may not agree with me on 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 that, but that's my stance, and and that's where I'm at, and it's worked for me. You use your power, and if you whatever tool you need to use is like. Brother Moray, I mean, Moray Sarum is a Muslim. Most Israelites don't. They, oh, that, they, they the devil or, or they, they worshiping Satan. They wouldn't talk to a Muslim. Some of my greatest teachings have come from him. 
and they did not contradict Torah. So when you're using things as a tool, that's what I mean. But the most important thing is understanding that you yourself are the crystal. Now, here's the thing. Here's an analogy I want to give you all. Because knowing that you are the crystal still doesn't change the obstacles that you have to go through. I'm going to give you all an analogy. Good friend DeMille shared this analogy with me. The analogy of the carnival. Life is like a carnival. It's like a rig carnival. You know when you go to go to the carnival and you have the basket. Let's just say with one in the games. So you got the basketball hoop game. Now we all know the hoop game is rigged. We all know the hoop game is rigged. We know that the rim is bent. The rim is higher. The rim is off to the side. The ball has no grip. And the ball is overinflated. We know all of those things about the game, about the basketball game at the carnival. And we know how rigged it is. But just because it's rigged doesn't mean that you don't have the ability or a probability to win the game. So many of you sitting here have hit that shot with a bent rim, hard ball, no grip, higher rim, rim to the side, rim for the back, standing in dirt in your good clothes. Many of you all have hit that shot. So you know that though it is improbable, it's not impossible. The game of life and where we're at right now in our walk, where we're at as people, you may think the game is rigged. And it may be, and you may feel it's improbable, but it's not impossible. I want to go back to that analogy really quick. And this is why what you think, your mind, your mindset is so important. How many people have you seen go to the carnival, know the game is rigged, and be like, I ain't going to hit that shot and walk away? A lot of us, especially us, we do that in life. We're like, oh, the game is rigged against us, and we just sit around and complain, and we don't try to find the way around it. Now, knowing that the game is rigged at the carnival, what do you do? What are some of your strategies? You can't just go up there and shoot. I'm a former collegiate basketball player. I can't go and shoot at the fair, the same way I shoot in the gym. Now, I'm not going to not take the shot just because the rim bent. No, okay, okay, if the rim is bent and the ball is hard, I know I have to shoot at a different trajectory than I would on my normal shot. I know the rim is higher, so I have to shoot the ball up a little higher, put a little more arc on it, make sure that my fingers are pointed at the rim and my toes are pointed at the rim and my arm is in and I get enough lift on the ball and flick my wrist and hold my follow through and get it in just right. I know I have to do that. I don't just walk away. Are you doing that in life? Are you looking in life and saying, yeah, I know the game is rigged, but what steps and what form do I need to hold in order to still make the improbable shot of winning the game of life. That's how you should look at life. So us who call ourselves Jews and Israelites, we can't continue to walk around saying the game is rigged. We can't say we're the chosen child of the chosen children of the most high and say that everything's against us. That doesn't make sense. Whatever you think, that becomes your reality. That's a known, that's a principle of life, principle of the universe, biblical principle. That's in there. That is a part of life. 
Whatever you think, that's what you will become. Whatever you keep saying, that's what your reality will be shaped to. So you must, must change the way you think and look at life and look at not how is this world against me, but how can we make it better? How can we make it so that way we can win? And I want to say this too. Just because we're, we're winning doesn't mean that anybody else has to lose. I got to put that out there. And just because other people are winning don't mean that we have to lose. It's not a zero-sum game. This world is a great world with a lot of resources. And multiple people and multiple groups can win at the same time. So I don't want you all to take this podcast and think that this is a us against them or... Th- This podcast has zero to do with anybody else. It has everything to do with us and what we can do. And yes, we've come through some trials and tribulations in the past to where we've tried and our efforts have been thwarted. But we got to keep trying again. Here's the thing, and I did a whole lesson on this. You go check it out on YouTube, Faith Over Fear. It's It's on my other YouTube channel, Living Word Initiative. You go check that out. It's the first video. Is it my? I believe it's my first video that I did. Faith over fear. Overcoming obstacles to obtain Yah's favor um, in our quest for salvation. In that video, I talked about Black Wall Street. Everybody knows the story about Black Wall Street. And everybody, all black people know that story. But what most black people don't know about the story of Black Wall Street is... In the story of Black Wall Street, they know about how great it was, all the greatness that it had, all the wonderful people and businesses and, the, and how it was thriving. And then they know that some event happened. Nobody even knows the event that happened. But I talk about it in the video, talk about it in my presentation. That part of Black Wall Street, Greenhaven, was torn, was set afire, set ablaze, you know, different things happened. They were driving around in crop dusters and dropping mazel toss on, on that part of town and all of that. Burnt it down. Most black people think that was the end of Black Wall Street. That was the end of Northern Tulsa, Greenhaven. But it was not. They rebuilt Black Wall Street, Northern Tulsa, Greenhaven. They built it even better than what we knew it to be. So the the stories of Black Wall Street that we heard, what was rebuilt was better than that. Even with with the city of Tulsa trying to enact ordinances saying that basically you had to build your buildings a certain way and you couldn't build them a certain way and doing all this type of crazy stuff and we were able to go to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court was able to rule in our favor and we were able to rebuild that part of the city and 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 it became greater than it was before. Most people don't know that part of the story, but that part of the story is the most important part of the story because it goes to show that that even in our defeat, we still were able to rise and be greater. What most people don't know was the ultimate destruction of Tulsa was mainly us. And it was it was way further ahead in the 60s when desegregation happened and everyone with money. And this is what happened around the country. and, And this is why the questions you ask yourself are very important. Everyone around the country, I'm sorry, Greenhaven, all of the wealthy people took their money and stopped spending it with other black people and started spending it with white people because they're like, okay, now we can spend our money with white people. That's what they wanted to do. So when I first started studying the story of of Tulsa, I said, hold on. 
Greenhaven wasn't the only thriving black city in America. What happened? This wasn't the only place. And that's how I discovered what actually happened to Greenhaven and then what actually happened to everybody. What hurt? First, it was an interstate. And then, I'm sorry, first it was an interstate. Interstate came, they built the interstate, cut right through the city, right through that part of town. So that cut off a lot of resources and, and money and businesses. And then the final death hammer was us taking our money and going and spending it with other people as opposed to with ourselves first. It's okay to spend your money with other people, but you always want to spend it with your people first. In doing some studying, I came across the John F. Kennedy's inaugural speech, and I found it very, very befitting for this moment in history that we're in now. I don't find it by coincidence that this speech is a speech that kind of outlines where we're moving forward to. And I wanted to I took this speech and I changed it around to customize us and where we're transitioning into now as a people. And I wanted this to be our black people in America's inaugural speech into a new identity. When I say a new identity, that's just an identity where we are proud of self, an identity where no matter what our background is, because many of us, we we know the history. We know we come from different places. We know we have many different mixtures in us. But at the same time, we are proud of where we've come from. We're proud of where our ancestors was at to now some of the opportunities that we're afforded now. So I found it very befitting to take this inaugural speech, customize it for us, and make this our inaugural speech so that way we can come into our new self into the new world and into our new identity. We observe today, not a victory of freedom, but a revelation of censorship, symbolizing an end to an illusion as well as a beginning to real truth, signifying renewal as well as change. The world is very different now for the common man holds in his hand, his mortal hand, the power to abolish all forms of human censorship and all forms of sovereign suppression. And the same revolutionary belief for which our forebears fought is still at issue for us today. The belief that the rights of man came not from the generosity of the state, but from the hand of God. We dare not forget today that we are the heirs of prior revolutions. Let the word go forth from this time and place to friend and foe alike that the torch has been passed to a new generation of the diaspora. Born in this time, tempered by psychological war, disciplined by a hope and a dream, proud of an ancient heritage and unwilling to witness or permit the slow undoing of our human rights to which this nation has always been reluctant to afford us throughout history and to which we are committed today and every day moving forward. Let, everyone, let every other person know whether it wishes us well or ill that we shall pay any price, bear any burden, meet any hardship, support any friend, oppose any foe to assure the survival and the success of freedom, this much we pledge and more. To our old allies, whose beliefs and ideology we share, 
we pledge the loyalty of faithful friends. My fellow brethren, united, there is little we cannot do in a host of cooperative ventures. Divided, though, there is little we can do. But like our brother Malcolm X told us, this journey will not be all-inclusive. To those new allies whom we welcome to build and barter with, we pledge our word that one form of colonial control shall not have passed away merely to be replaced by far more iron tyranny. We shall not always expect to find them supporting our view, but we shall always hope to find them strongly supporting their own freedom. And to remember that in the past, those who foolishly sought power by riding the back of the tiger ended up inside. To those people in the huts and villages of half the globe struggling to break the bonds of mass misery, we pledge our best efforts to help them that help themselves for whatever period is required, not because anyone else may be doing it, not because we seek their validation, but because it is right. If a free society cannot help the many who are poor, it cannot save the few who are free. To our relatives in the diaspora, we offer a special pledge to convert our good word into good deeds and a new alliance for progress, to assist free men and free governments in casting off the chains of poverty and bondage. But this peaceful revolution of hope cannot become the prey of hostile powers. Let all of our people know that we shall join with them to oppose aggression or subversion anywhere in the world. And let every other power know that the group in this group intends to remain the master of its own house. To the world, our last best hope in an age where the instruments of war have far outpaced the instruments of peace. We renew our pledge of support to prevent it from becoming merely a form for abuse, to strengthen its shield of the new end of the week, and to enlarge in the area in which its powers may run. Finally, to those nations who would make themselves our adversary, we offer not a pledge but a request that both sides begin anew the quest for peace before the dark powers of destruction unleashed by science engulf all humanity in planned or accidental self-destruction. We dare not tempt them with weakness, for only when our arms are sufficient beyond doubt can we be certain beyond the doubt that we will never be employed. But neither any great and powerful group of nations take comfort from our present course. Both sides overburdened by the cost of suppression, but rightly alarmed by the steady spread of deadly misinformation. Yet both racing to alter that uncertain balance of terror that that stays the hand of mankind. So let us begin anew remembering on both sides that civility is not a sign of weakness and sincerity is always subject to proof. Let us never negotiate out of fear, but let us never fear to negotiate. Let both sides explore what problems unite us instead of belaboring those problems which divide us. Let both sides for the first time formulate serious and precise proposals 
for the inspection and control of freedom and bring the absolute power of freedom under the absolute control of all nations. Let both sides seek to invoke the wonder of freedom instead of its terror. Let both sides unite to heed in all corners of the earth the, com the command of Isaiah to undo the heavy burdens and let their oppressed go free. And if a beachhead of cooperation may push back the jungle of suspicion, a suspicion, let both sides join in creating a new endeavor, not a new balance of power, but a new world of law where we strong, where the strong are just and the weak secure the peace preserved. All this will not be seen today, nor will it be finished in this generation. But let us begin. In your hands, Black America, we will rest the final success or failure of our course. Since we arrived here in this country, each generation of our ancestors has been summoned to give testimony to progress for us all. The groves of our ancestors, the graves of our ancestors who answered the call to move us forward are all about this country. Now the trumpet summons us again, not as a call to bear arms, though arms we need, not as a call to battle, though embattled we are, but a call to bear the burden of a long, bright transition, year in and year out, rejoicing in progress, patient in tribulation, a struggle against the common enemies of us, tyranny, poverty, disease, and oppression itself. Can we forge against these enemies a united front, north and south, east and west? That can ensure a more fruitful life for all of our people, as well as the rest of mankind. Will you join in this historic effort? In the long history of the world, only a few generations have been great granted the role of defending freedom in its hour of maximum danger. I do not shrink from this responsibility. I welcome it. I do not believe that any of us would exchange places with any other people or any other generation. The energy, the faith, the devotion, which we bring to this endeavor will light our people and all who serve it. And the glow from that fire can truly light the rest of the world. As so, Black Americans, ask not what your brother can do for you, but ask what you, what you can do for your brother. My fellow citizens of the world, Ask not what black America would do for you, but what together can we do for the freedom of man? Finally, whether you are a black American or citizen of the world, ask of us here the same high standards of strength and sacrifice which we ask of you. With a good conscience, our own sure reward, with history, the final judge of our deeds. Let us go forth to lead the lives we love asking the creditors, <clears throat> excuse me, asking the creator's blessing and the creator's help, but knowing that here on earth, the creator's work must truly be our own. So I want to thank you all for coming to the kitchen. And I hope this entree was nourishing for you. 
I hope that we can come together in our new form of identity. I hope that we can come together moving forward as a whole. I hope that we can step forward and place apart our differences, place aside our differences and start working together and step into a new identity of, of, of being great, of being chosen, just being a great seed. And I want you to join me again as we go live from the kitchen.